Welcome to the A Day at DPL podcast. Colin Savage from one of DPL's investors, Atlas Merchant Capital, shares his thoughts on macro trends in the advisory and insurance industries, why Atlas got behind DPL's business model, and the role that tech will play in retirement planning moving forward. Welcome, Colin Savage, to A Day at DPL, our podcast with you know industry leaders and thought leaders. Today, we're going to be talking about all things DPL and insurance and Atlas Merchant Capital as well, where Colin leads Atlas Merchant Capital's private investments in North America and has been with Atlas for a little over six years. Colin previously worked in investment banking with Citigroup, UBS, and Rothschild, with a particular focus on the insurance sector. At Atlas, Colin has been involved in all North American transactions and all insurance transactions globally. He serves currently on the board of Somerset Reinsurance and DPL Financial Partners and was previously a director or observer to the board of Talcott Resolution, South Street Securities, and a census. So welcome, Colin. Thank you. Great to be here today. Well, I appreciate the time. Let's talk a little bit about Atlas first. Can you talk about Atlas's business model and investment philosophy? What kinds of investments you typically look at? And you know what ultimately attracted you know Atlas to the opportunity to invest at DPL? Sure. So Atlas Merchant Capital is a global investment firm. We're co-located between New York and London, and we have debt and equity investment strategies in the public and, and private markets. The firm itself was founded about seven years ago to focus on opportunities coming out of the global financial crisis specific to the financial services sector. We had the view that there would be a lot of opportunities there given the dislocations and changes in regulations and industry structures. We also had the view that the the amount of private capital focused on financial services was underweight relative to what financial services represent as a portion of public markets or the economy. Finally, we had the view that a specialist in financials, someone who was really focused on the nuances of highly regulated businesses, would, would have a, an advantageous outcome. So we, we started with a private investment fund focused on financial services. Since then, we've added two additional uh, business lines. We've added a credit fund shortly before COVID focused on special situations. And then in 2020, we added a SPAC vehicle, which recently affects morning announcements transaction. And we viewed that public lens of the SPAC as being very complementary to what we do in our in our private fund. So that's, that's Atlas. With respect to DPL, DPL was headed towards two trends that we thought were interesting. First, annuities, which are a big part of American savings, but annuities shifting away from heavy load commissions towards fee-based or commission-free products. We see that as just an area of growth in the market. And then secondly, RIA taking uh, market share of managed assets away from traditional managers from, from wirehouses and the like, and that being an area of growth. So, you know, since DPL is connecting RAAs and, and carriers with respect to annuities, it's hitting both of those trends. We thought there was a tremendous opportunity for some strong growth and, and frankly, an opportunity to help 
American savers save better, make make better decisions. That's great. And and you you mentioned COVID, and it seems like you can't do an interview or talk to somebody today without talking about the impacts of COVID on your business. I know it somewhat impacted our discussions in that we never actually met in person until after we'd completed a transaction because of you know travel restriction. You went through the whole due diligence process and making the investment in DPL with without actually meeting in person. How else did you see COVID impact you know, what you guys were trying to accomplish at Atlas? You know, it, it's interesting. One, I think there can be in a very abrupt, un, unforeseen, severe downturn in the markets. There can be a moment of volatility and kind of crisis. And if the downturn we saw in 2020 had been more prolonged, you know, many, many Americans would have had to make you know, very different decisions than what they ultimately had to make. So I think there's a lesson there in how people think about risk and plan, not just to maximize wealth, but to minimize risk and, and protect, protect against the downside. Second, on a personal level, I think COVID has made many people reassess how long they want to work, where they want to work, how they want to work, you know, what their lifestyle is. And uh, certainly not everybody has the luxury of sort of having free, free decisions around that, but some folks do. And those decisions all also they can influence because you can think about how people are saving, what rate they're saving, how, uh, what's their style of saving. And, uh, you know, to a certain level, there's folks who may have decided that now they want to retire at 55 or 60 instead of 65 or 70. They have a different approach to savings, to income, to risk management and retirement. As I understand it, the group sort of post-COVID that's had the largest increase in wealth and also the lowest rate of labor market re-entry. So the people who haven't been sent home have stayed home. It's that 55-year-old cohort. And some number of them have just sort of decided that whatever they have, whatever position they have is sufficient, and they're going to make a go of it uh, with that. And you've been working in insurance for the majority of your career. And like many industries, there's there have been a lot of changes in, in the insurance industry. What changes have you seen throughout your career? One change I've seen is just a continued evolution in how risk is packaged and distributed and and it's had the net effect to make it cheaper to manage risk. So a good example away from the life insurance sector is uh, ILS or insurance linked securities. So these are financial instruments and they allow investors to take something like hurricane risks and and treat it like a corporate bond instead of funding it off of an you know a Lloyd's balance sheet and some sort of arcane place in London you, you're trading it like a corporate bond and that's allowed more coverage of hurricane exposures because you get a, a larger addressable universe and it's allowed cheaper coverage of hurricane exposures because you're putting it into a more efficient financial instrument and that's been a process that's been going on for a very long time but that's sort of one continuation of it the second is really improved productivity driven by technology uh, that, I think that's led to a cheaper servicing of customers and also some new some new business models. So the best example, I think, is actually in the personal line side where if you have a car crash now or a tree falls on your house or what have you, you generally can take a picture of the damage with your phone rather than have the claims adjuster come out as you as you might have done. So that drives a tremendous amount of productivity. I think similarly, GPL is, is an example of that because you're making it more productive, more efficient for RIAs to compare annuities to help people think about what outcomes might be with an annuity, without an annuity, between different annuities and the like. One aspect that, that hasn't changed, I think it's important to note, and it's just that insurance is just, it's here to minimize the risk of bad outcomes, 
maximize the expected outcomes and you know lower the volatility, if you will. And that aspect hasn't changed. I don't think will change. And these other things are just sort of helping that happen in a, in a better way. Yeah. And I think that's really important for RIAs that we serve, right? Because the traditional risk mitigation mechanisms they'd use in a portfolio as clients approach retirement would be simply glide path from a heavy equity exposure during wealth accumulation into more fixed income and bonds as, as a client approached or got into retirement. And that was the safety mechanism brought into the retirement portfolio. But today, you know, those bonds yield so little that it's really hard to do that. So they need to go beyond the traditional investment portfolios to look at things like insurance that can mitigate risk while still delivering some kind of income that traditional fixed income hasn't been able to deliver and may not for the foreseeable future. So one of the other things that we see in working with insurance carriers, in my mind, there's becoming kind of a new breed of insurance carrier that goes along with the kind of old legacy insurance carriers that everybody knows, you know, the New York Lives, the TIAAs of the world. But now you see a lot of private equity backed insurance companies, Apollo with Athene, I think was one of the first ones, you know, KKR came in with Global Atlantic, you've got, you know, F&G, Security Benefit, any number of others, you know, with private equity backing. What would your commentary or vision be relative to that dynamic that we see in the marketplace? Yeah, I think there's a broader backdrop there. As you say, you have some private equity backed insurers stepping forward, uh, like Athene. You also have legacy insurers stepping away from insurance. A number of them have said, look, we're not going to write variable annuities anymore. Principles announced a restructuring. Voya over the years has gone towards the fee-based model, MetLife. Uh, spun out Bright House and, and some of its businesses. The Hartford left life entirely uh, by exiting Talcott Resolution. So there's been a little bit of a reshuffling. I think it's an interesting discussion whether the exits are more to do with simply a cohort of business that wasn't in the end particularly profitable and there was going to be a, an overhang on earnings for a very long time to come. And, and maybe these companies want to sort of not operate under that cloud. On the other hand, there is commentary from time to time about, you know, Apollo managing Athene assets or, you know, Global Atlantic and Blackstone and the like. And, you know, I like to point out that Prudential and Mass Mutual are very large asset management businesses. And the customers for those are generally the insurance companies themselves. So that relationship in and of itself isn't new. There's certainly regulations and attention that's paid to it to make sure that it's all happening in the right format. But, you know, Prudential is a very large originator of, of, uh, of mortgages, of commercial mortgages in the country. All the insurers are operating in, in somewhat of the same regulatory environment and the same market environment. And the products are issuing today, they have to figure out, you know, A, what, what's the value of it to the consumers? Uh, and then, you know, B, of course, how can they make a living off of that and earn a return on the capital they're deploying? I think we're sort of reaching a new equilibrium. There will always be some edge cases where someone is coming in new to the market who's being a little bit aggressive, but I think those generally don't tend to get a lot of traction, a lot of staying power, a lot, a lot of, uh, of market share. 
Yeah, I think one of the examples in in the RIA world that you know a lot of our advisors would be familiar with in what you were referring to is Allianz with Pimco. Pimco being one of the premier fixed income managers in the market, very favorable brand. You know, with RIAs, they're owned by Allianz and manage much of Allianz's balance sheet. And of course, here at DPL, we've got terrific products from Allianz on the fixed side of the business. So when I set out to build you know DPL you know it was based on a on a primary thesis that I've you know operated on and have leveraged throughout my career, which is to reduce expensive distribution and to provide better value to consumers. You can eliminate some of the big expense, you know, whether at, you know, Telebank, you know, it was eliminating branches or Jefferson National eliminating expensive wholesaling and commissions. You can deliver a much better you know, product to the consumer, but also you want to make sure when you're building a business that you have a lot of macro industry trends also behind you. You know, that can you know, make it easier for, you know, for the business to thrive and grow. Because you looked at us, you know, from Atlas's point of view, as you did diligence and, and look to invest. Can you talk about some of the macro trends in the industry that you think are, are wins in our sales? I think there's a few. Um, one, America is, is aging. Every year we have a record number of Americans who are turning 65. And that means we have a record number of Americans who have to figure out what they're going to do in their retirement and move past asset accumulation to income preservation. The younger generations have tended to be savers to a larger degree than the boomers were. So on the, even on the accumulation side, there's sort of a positive trend. Second, there has been a shift from the wirehouses to the RIAs, people going to RIAs for advice. Third, the expectations of consumers, even if it's not a regulatory standard, I think the, there is an increased expectation that advisors are operating to a fiduciary standard, whether they're obliged to or not, and that they're really giving informed, well-founded advice. Fifth, I wonder if there's not going to be a bit of a COVID bump in the next couple of years where folks decide not to re-enter the market or to accelerate their own retirements. Put all that together, and a lot of Americans are trying to figure out what they're going to do in retirement. They're going to RIAs increasingly to ask the question. And, you know, DPL is giving RAs the tools to help help those folks get the right answers and make the right decisions. Yeah. And I think even the product set in itself, you know, annuities are important to that particular problem. I mean, whether it's COVID driven, where we're seeing a spike in people retiring early, that had been a trend already. Retirement's just expanding on both ends. People are retiring a little bit earlier than they've planned, whether because they had to or they're choosing to. Life expectancy continues to increase, particularly among the wealthier, healthier set that RIAs work with. So in the low interest rate environment, it makes annuities particularly valuable and important to delivering a safe retirement. Another trend we've seen over the past decade, which is one of the theses you know I had in building DPL, was that you know RIAs were only asset managers originally. They really didn't do holistic planning. Talking you know 15, 20 years ago, they didn't really do wealth management. Advisors and many other channels were. 
RIAs were kind of prohibited from doing that in leveraging insurance towards those plans because of the commission-driven nature of insurance. But today, everybody wants to manage the entire client relationship. And from a business perspective for RIAs, as they have expanded into financial planning and wealth management, adding insurance is kind of both offense and defense as we look at it. You know, it's the opportunity to expand wallet share for your client with your client, but it's also preventing your client from having to go to another advisor who's more competitive with you. So we see that as a big and important trend across the RAs and that we fit a pretty strong need for them in helping solve that problem. What are, what are your thoughts relative to that trend towards holistic wealth management across all channels? So from the RA side, if you if you don't have the full picture, then you can't really give sound advice. So I think RAs have to have the, the, the full picture if they're going to do their jobs properly. And, you know, insurance is going to be part of that. It might be that there's a client that has an annuity that their spouse or a relative or even themselves ended up with some time ago and they have to figure out you know, how it fits in. It may be that they're shifting from accumulation to retirement and they have to figure out whether they need to guarantee a minimum income base or whether they're wealthy enough that that's not really a consideration. But you know, the clients have questions, they need information, and the RIAs need to have the tools to give good answers. Otherwise, it's just a, a partial solution. So that's the RIA side. On the, the sort of client side, just personally, I strongly believe that consumers want a single stop as much as is feasible. They don't want to do 90% with one person and then 10% with some insurance agent who doesn't really know who they are. They don't want to cover 100% with one stop. And that sort of, again, guides you back to RAs just needing the tools to be able to provide that that view in a, in a reasonable fashion. Yeah, and we think that's really important. And you know, data bears that out, that clients really want one advisor. It's particularly when it comes to retirement. So during accumulation, on average, somebody has three advisors. They might have their insurance broker or agent who sold them you know, some annuities. They've got somebody who does primary asset management. And then they've got you know, somebody else you know, as well. They might divide their portfolio. But then when it comes to retirement, you really need that single person who's got the viewpoint over your entire portfolio portfolio to give you clear advice as to how you can generate your income and which assets you should be leveraging to fund your spending, people tend to consolidate. And for an RIA, we believe, again, having insurance and annuity solutions really positions you well to you know capture those assets as clients consolidate. And frankly, and if you don't do it, you're at a real disadvantage. The RIA differentiation forever was that they were fiduciaries and they managed assets on fees. Pretty much every advisor does that today. They manage money on fees and they act in a client's best interest. There are differences, of course, in best interest and fiduciary, but to a client, they sound the same. Uh, and frankly, the, the study also shows that best interest sounds better to clients than fiduciary, even though it's a lighter standard. Another opportunity we see is to address the legacy annuity market, which is mostly, almost entirely, frankly, comprised of complex, expensive, legacy products. And this enforced annuity market is huge, you know, upwards of, you know, $3 trillion. You know, most estimates put the variable annuity market at $2.2, $2.4 trillion. The fixed market is somewhere, you know, a little north of a, a trillion dollars. When we talk to advisors, 
You have clients with existing annuities they may have purchased years ago, but these products aren't being utilized and frankly, you know, might be need to be restructured or repositioned within a financial plan to meet the client's current needs. How do you think about this kind of huge embedded market and the opportunity it represents for RIAs? Well, first, I think it's a huge business opportunity for the RIAs. I don't know what the number is, but if I think about the assets under administration and the sort of revenues that flow from it for the RIA universe, and then if I add in the client annuities that aren't in that bucket, yeah, that's going to increase the RIA's business. And it's going to increase it on a permanent basis. I don't know if that's 5 10 15% more, but it's, it expands the pie. And I think everyone should sort of ask the question of whether that's kind of an easy way to make their clients happier and also kind of have a permanent increase in their business. The second point is that it would defy belief that all of those annuities that those clients currently have are actually the best annuities for those clients. Some of them undoubtedly are going to be products that should never have been sold that have high watermarks and, and 6% crediting rates um, and that, you know, are going to be costing their issuers money for decades to come. There's a lot that aren't those, and maybe they just have very, very high commissions. And if you shift it into a different product, you'd have the same expense effect in effect to the owner, but a, a much better return, a much better financial profile, maybe a higher, more highly rated issuer. And, you know, RAs should have the tools to figure out which of those exist and are in their clients' hands and, and you know, take action to get them into something that's uh, more suitable. Yeah, we agree completely. So it's it's really looking at those held away annuities as a win-win-win for everyone involved. For the client, the RA has got the opportunity to get them in a far lower cost product that can be aligned with their current financial plan. Often these annuities were sold kind of on a one-off basis, not within the context of a plan with a particular purpose in mind. So the RA has got the opportunity to take that held away asset, do a big favor for the client, get them into a better better product and then align the purpose of the product with the financial plan that they're currently managing. The RA is a hero to the client for getting them into the better product. In the meantime, they've brought in additional AUM, increasing their share of wallet, and they've deployed the asset in a very productive way into the financial plan. And it's no secret that retirement realities are changing. Retirement's expanding. Joe Coughlin at MIT's Age Institute you know, says that today, wealthy Americans are spending a third of their life in retirement. That's a very significant period of time where they've got to mostly self-fund that retirement. Pensions have gone away. Social security is likely to be around, though many people think it's going to be with a diminished benefit. And funding your own income for 30 years without the ability to you know go back to work often and with all the unknowns in retirement is pretty daunting. So what are some of the issues you see when it comes to minimizing the chances of failure of a financial plan? There's a mathematical formula I like to talk about here that sort of expresses it. So there's actually more than one way to do an average. What we mostly think of as an arithmetic average. So you you take zero and two, zero plus two is two, you divide it by two, the average is one. So, so your average outcome is, is one. A geometric average is you, you don't add them, you multiply them. So zero times two is zero, and you raise it to the one half power, which is still zero. 
you know, that's a, a critical difference. So if I play a video game, I can die, hit reset, come back in and, and win the game. And what happened in the first game doesn't ha- impact what happened in the in the second game. If I'm talking about my, my retirement and if in year 16, I run out of money, you know, there is no reset button. I, I still don't have any money in year 17 and it's a zero forever. So if we think about retirement and, you know, a 30 year retirement, if you will, we have to think about what would constitute a zero and, and make sure that it doesn't happen. And is that running out of assets? Is it income that trails inflation over a very long time or, or you know, what, whatever else it might be? So I think the from a planning perspective, uh, folks have to think about what their clients' budgets are, what their risk exposures are, and, you know, whether there's ways to mitigate uh, that downside and ensure that there's some minimum income or, or what have you and, and you know, decrease uh, the chances of, of failure. Yeah, I think it's so important. You know, I, I talk a lot when I talk to advisors about the fact that, you know, retirement is a relatively new problem in terms of managing somebody's retirement. You, it's expanding in duration, as we keep saying. Fixed income interest rates are so low. You don't have those safe assets and bonds funding retirement like they, they once did. You don't have pensions, all of these things. Uh, that make retirement a challenge. So when, if you're an advisor who's still working under the old paradigm of let's you know go from a you know whatever 80 20 60 40 portfolio during accumulation and then you can't now migrate into the heavy bond portfolio how do you generate retirement income without having your clients increase their risk tolerance into retirement. And I think that's a, a really big factor. And in, in one of the ways low interest rates are affecting the way advisors can manage client assets, a low interest rate environment also has an impact on our partners, the insurance carriers. And you know, can you discuss you know the impact low interest rates have on insurance carriers? There's two you know, sets of impacts, the, the policies that were written yesterday and the policies that are written today. The policies that are written in the past, you know, and, and now we have to go some time into the past, given how long rates have been low. Those policies might have been written with the expectation of a 4%, um, uh, 3%, 10-year rate. And so now the insurer is not making money on that policy, and they're not going to make money for the life of the policy. So in that instance, they may decide that they'd rather not own it anymore. They'd rather sell it to someone else and not have the every year drip, drip, drip of more losses off of this exposure. And that's some of what you're seeing today, I think, in some of these um, transactions in the market. On the other hand, every day, every month, carriers get to choose what terms they want to write the new policy on and how they price and what the benefits are. With low rates, you're seeing less complexity, less swinging for the fences, less optionality in some ways, asking consumers to decide if they want this feature or that feature. But you're still seeing products themselves. If you want a lifetime annuity, if you want a five-year annuity, those are out there and they're being priced for, for today's market. And the huge value that advisors don't often appreciate until they look at the annuity payouts is the benefit of the survivorship credit or a mortality credit, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, whether you want to look at it under the survivorship or mortality lens. It's that benefit of that risk pooling that the carrier can add on top of the interest rate. So if you're investing alone, you're getting interest from markets going to bear. The mortality credit never changes, right? That word changes very little over over the course of time. So relative to the 
amount of income you can generate from an investment, that mortality credit is worth so much more in a low interest rate environment that you can see much better payout rates that's really not impacted by low interest rate environments. So that makes annuities even more attractive today. So as advisors look at annuities, they're often surprised by how much benefit that mortality credit uh, brings to the payout rates insurance carriers can bring to those products. So one of the questions we get, because insurance is a long-term solution, particularly when we look at annuities, you know, funding lifetime income, advisors get the question from their clients, you know, what happens if a carrier fails? And, you know, we know that's an incredibly rare event. Can you talk about some of the reasons that is, you know, from, you know, the regulatory oversights, to the capital requirements, you know, why is it so rare, you know, to see an insurance carrier fail? Yeah, it's an important risk to consider, but it's not one, frankly, I'm not that worried about. So I think we have a very, very robust insurance regulatory system in the U.S., and there's multiple layers to it. We have 50 states, each with their own uh, regulation around a common NEIC capital framework. We have an accounting regime, statutory accounting, that is not GAAP, that's focused on cash, liquidity, solvency, making sure that when you're looking at the numbers, you really are crystal clear on whether there's the assets and the and the cash to pay claims. Independent rating agencies led by AM Best that um, have an outside view, third-party view on the capitalization of these companies. And then you have tools from actuaries and asset managers to help assess outcomes across a range of market environments, behavior environments, and the like. AIG, I think, is a good example here. They had tremendous, tremendous losses in their non-insurance businesses in the financial crisis. They had very significant mark-to-market changes in value inside their uh, life business in the financial crisis. All of their policyholders were always paid what they were owed. No one ever had a payment that was missed. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you look inside a typical insurance company, you will not find a, a 60-40 portfolio as one might suggest for an individual saver. You're going to find a lot of highly rated fixed income. You're going to find a smaller allocation to structured credit or, or something that's more equity-like in returns. And it will uh, be, you know, not as volatile as a, a traditional savers portfolio might be. Personally, I would be uh, more focused on pension plans that may not have current adequate funding for obligations, that don't have an equity cushion to be uh, relied upon, and that have forward return expectations with which they're filling their funding gap that are you know, significantly above what a modest portfolio can generate. Yeah, we see that on individual retirement plans as well. I think that last point's been documented in the press quite a bit. You know, some of these pension plans, their forward-looking market assumptions are a little too rosy, which can create some issues, you know, for their future pensioners. We see the same on an individual level sometimes with RIAs as we work to model annuities within a financial plan, and sometimes the annuity doesn't look that good. But then if you look at the market assumptions, the go-forward market assumptions a lot of RIAs are still using historical fixed income assumptions at over 5% returns. And when you do that, you know, the, the, the plan looks a heck of a lot better, but you're, the chances of, of that happening are almost none. An important point, you know, using real market assumptions based on today's realities, not, you know, kind of yesterday's history. So 
annuities and technology are not you know two words that often go together annuities historically have been sold right by individual agents kind of you know as an individual product but you know we think that technology relative to annuities is incredibly important on a number of different fronts one you want to have an integrated experience you know for the advisor so the advisor can see the annuity you know interact with the rest of the portfolio and the financial plan but also that you know the advisor's got a way of comparing these annuities. Annuities have generally never been compared before. They're kind of sold again as you know by that individual agent as kind of a point sale. What kind of role do you see you know, technology playing in the adoption and distribution of annuity products in the future? I think the main impact is just to reduce confusion. There are thousands and thousands of annuities in the world. Uh, there are tens of thousands of annuity riders. There's just too much out there for folks to make a decision with perfect information. That means, you know, you need tools. Technology is the way to, to give tools. And frankly, that's what DPL is doing. You can allow someone to compare an existing annuity to a new one. You can look at, you know, what might happen if you have an annuity in retirement versus if you don't. Those are the tools that will let somebody make smart decisions with their advisors and, and get the annuity that best fits their needs. So one of the challenges we face with RIAs you know, here at DPL, and it's probably the biggest one, is just getting the change of mindset relative to annuities. You know, historically, you know, they've been perceived as complex, expensive products. I often say the root of all evil is tied to the commission. Everything an RA complains about, you know, with an annuity can generally be tied to the commission, whether it's the surrender period, the, you know, high prices, the bad sales practices, whatever it might be. But nevertheless, you know, those perceptions exist and advisors, you know, seem to hold annuities to a different standard than many other investment products. Some want to just punt on the fact that it's complex. But basically, as a financial advisor, you live in the world of complexity. Everything you deal with is complex at some level. How do you think about complexity and annuities and using them in a portfolio and and getting people to give them a fresh look? I think annuities have gotten a reputation of being very complex. And I think a number of the annuities that were sold in the early 2000s were pretty complex, but that's not the the whole story. I mean, variable annuities, which are kind of the poster child for the complexity, those were invented in the early 50s for teachers. TIA Kreft created variable annuities to help teachers save prudently with downside protection, but have some exposure to upside if things went well some hedge against inflation, some equity kind of characteristics. That's the original conception of an annuity. And I think that's where, we, where we're going back to today. I think you, you can see from all the portfolios that have changed hands that that very complicated variable annuity turns out wasn't profitable, and uh, at least for the issuer, and isn't one that you know, people really want to have, have around. The annuity that I think we're really looking at is pretty simple. It, it gives people a baseline level of income. Maybe it's a single premium where you pay up front once and then you get an annual payment the rest of your life. Maybe it's a, a fixed index annuity or even a VA where there's some participation in equity market growth on top of that fixed payment. But end of the day, it's, it's a guaranteed cash flow into the future. And that can be very valuable. Today, the S&P 500 is about two and a quarter times what it was 10 years ago. So it's up a lot. 
if you go back to 2018 and look at that versus 2008, S&P 500 was flat. If you look at 2017 versus 2007, S&P 500 was down by 30 or 40% over the prior 10 years. Now, over time, equity markets do provide attractive returns, but for any you know medium-term period, it's certainly possible that they're flat or down. And if people are thinking about their retirements and protecting against the downside, then they have to balance that desire for long-term wealth creation with the need for near and medium-term capital preservation income protection. Yeah, agreed. And and we try to bring products to market, as I say, that can be used, not sold. So I think that's really important for an RIA who's, again, never looking to sell an annuity, but rather use them or deploy them into a financial plan for their clients to help bring income and certainty and predictability into that financial plan cover essential expenses, you know, through retirement, through that guaranteed income feature of an annuity. And we think the combination of simplified products along with the technology and tools to evaluate them and use them and integrate them into your desktop is an incredibly important development for the RA industry. So as you look long-term to the insurance market, the financial advice industries, and there's so many changes going on, you know, what are some of the things that, that excite you that you think are you know really interesting and, and terrific developments? Yeah, I think if you step back, retirement is a DIY exercise for most Americans now. We don't have pensions. We need to save ourselves and plan ourselves. At the same time, there's collectively, we're doing a better job of giving better tools and better information to Americans. Financial engines did it with portfolio optimization, you know, layered into a fund, which is very powerful. We've seen laddered uh, retirement allocations from some of the funds. And now with DPL, we're seeing it with the ability to compare these annuities and to also see how an annuity can impact an individual, you know, saver's outcomes. So to me, it comes back to sort of, you know, on the one hand, the need to plan for retirement and save in an effective way. And then two, having, you know, really powerful tools to help that happen in in a better, more effective way. Yeah, I think that DIY notion for retirement is that's the new you know, aspect, you know, for Americans. And it makes it really tough to do when you're using investments alone, particularly in low interest rate environment. The annuity tool, you know, for an RIA is incredibly powerful to do that. It can bring benefits into the plan that nothing else can in terms of true investments. Annuities provide for cover longevity risk, sequence of returns risk, you know, all kinds of things that clients worry about and clients care about in retirement. So we're really excited to be doing what we're doing. We think it's important for the development of the RIA market in giving them new tools and capabilities to serving their clients in retirement, which is, again, a new and different problem than it always has been. And having these kind of powerful tools is rewarding work as we think we're helping RAs deliver better retirement outcomes for their clients. So with that, thank you for being on and give you a chance for you know, any parting comments. Thanks for having me on. On behalf of Atlas, we're very excited to be part of the, the, the journey that DPL is on. We think there's some tremendous opportunities ahead for, for DPL, for the carriers, for the RAs, and ultimately for the savers that everyone's trying to, to help here. So thanks a lot. And we're looking forward to what comes next. Excellent. Thank you, Colin. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, go to dplfp.com and subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify.